Okay, my friends, Liv here. Very excited about this week's episode. We have C. Quintana, or who I lovingly refer to as CQ. She is a dear friend of mine. We went to undergrad together at the College of Santa Fe. Since then, she has gone on to get an MFA from Columbia's playwriting program. She is a writer of all things. We're talking plays, television, scripted podcast, fiction, nonfiction. Her work runs the gamut. She has done so many amazing things since I've seen her last, and I'm so psyched to have her on the show. So sit back, relax. It's coming up right now. Welcome to My Gay Playlist and Stories from Outside the Closet. My name is Liv Lombardi, and I am your host. This is a podcast about coming out and the music that inspires our journeys. To me, coming out is an act of honesty. It's something that we do every day when we decide to live our lives as authentically as possible. Where are my dreamers at? Where are my freaks and geeks and weirdos and losers and nerds? If you were ever told you don't have a place here, I'm saying this table is set for you. So take a seat and tell me about it. And we'll start with this. What are your stories and what are your songs? If you'd like to follow along and listen to each guest's particular gay playlist as you stream our episodes, head over to mygayplaylist.com. There you'll find each episode's corresponding song list. Until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. How have you been? Dude, I've been good. How have you been? How's life? I feel like we need to catch up a bit before we get in. I was about to say, we need like a real catch up beyond beyond the podcast for sure. Yeah. So since I've seen you last, what, what's been going on? You finished your MFA and then you've just been say. like working tirelessly to be the most badass playwright ever, I think is kind of what I, and you got married. Yeah. 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 So you're, you've been pretty busy. I mean, you're teaching a poetry workshop in June. Yeah. You are part of that awesome thing with Audible, the Emerging Playwrights Commission. You're a recipient for them. So you, you've done stuff through the Kennedy Center. You, your play, Scissoring, was was it off Broadway last year or two years that ago? That was actually 2018, which is crazy. Oh my god! It feels like a lifetime okay, ago. Okay, so 2018, because 2020 was like four years in one, so it throws off the time continuum. I know, I was thinking about that because uh, my play Azul actually is, you know, officially a TBD, but hopefully, should everything be okay with COVID, is going to be have its second production at Diversionary Theater in San Diego, which is exciting. And what's Dude, really awesome. crazy about it, though, is that like the first production was in the spring of 2019, you know, so it's going to be really weird because by the time actually that'll be like probably late 2021, early 2022. Right. So it'll literally be like almost three years. Right. It's like two years at least t- since the original production. Right. 2019. Yeah, um, yeah. so it's like literally going to be almost like three years, I guess, which is so weird. It's like the pandemic, pandemic life, man. It's wild. It It's thrown off, I think, all of the, like how I perceive time, but also the rate at which I'm working at. Like I used to be someone that was so obsessed with, I need to get this done so I can get it out because I need to prove that I'm making because that's what I do. And there's a t- there was like this very strict timeline in my head, but the pandemic- yeah especially last year, 2020 in general was like, well, if you just need to take your time with these things to let them (laughs) unfold, I mean, you can do that. You can push things off if you need to, or you can just let them take the shape that they need to and the time that they need to. I don't know if that's true for you at all, because you seem like you're still working at an incredible pace, but no, I think, yeah, you know, and I think it's an important reminder. I don't know. It's so complicated on so many levels. I feel like I have a definitely have a bit of that. I think it's a little bit of like a millennial produce syndrome, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I'm also, I mean, I'm a Scorpio in that way for sure. Like I think I'm definitely, I've always been an ambitious person and I just think like, that's just kind of who I am. I'm just always moving. I'm a mover. I like to move. I like to do things. It's also a way I avoid things is by doing. Um, so I think actually the pandemic did, force me in some ways to like slow down and reevaluate. And also just like, it was a really interesting time, like project wise for me. I mean, obviously my background totally being, you know, it's traditionally been in the theatrical world. So I was really lucky that as a writer, I still had work, you know, but it did Mm -hmm. sort of 
caused me to just sort of like have this shift of focus in a way because I had come back. I had just been doing this TV gig in LA and I was like really excited to be back to be working on theater. Like I was like, you know, just ready for it and kind of hungry for it. And I had like a few things mm-hmm. like I, I, this production was supposed to happen in the Bay area. And I was working on this workshop that I was super psyched about for this sort of hybrid piece uh, at WP and like really excited about that. And then obviously, you know, everything happened with the pandemic and it was just like, okay, like time to reevaluate things. And like, what am I doing Mm -hmm. going forward? And honestly, one thing that sort of came out of that that I'm really grateful for is, you know, this novel, I've, I've really had a dream to publish a novel. Like it's been a dream for a really, really long time. And, you know, right when I was coming out of grad school, like the first thing that I got out of grad school was the Lambda Literary Fellowship. And I went for fiction and it was like this huge boon for me. And it was just like a really special place on so many levels, but just like to be in a workshop with a bunch of like queer people and to like, just not have to think about, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. for once to just not have people evaluate, like, why are your characters queer? Why are your storylines queer? It was just like, that's how it is. And it was just like this very. Right. Like here I am. This is what I have to, this is part of my, the story I'm telling. And there's no like picking a part of the why and how and how it makes you different. No question marks about that. And it was just like this beautiful thing that I don't even think I fully like was prepared to experience. Lucy Jane Bledsoe was my workshop instructor and she's been, you know, she's become really like a, a mentor and a friend, you know, since then. And pushed really hard with that novella. And then it's hard to, you know, with shorter form fiction, it's harder for sure. Um, And I like queried with that. And I like sent it a bunch of places and it was like a finalist and a semi-finalist, but just didn't get picked up. And then like this idea, really, I'd been thinking about it when I was in LA working on the book, I mean, working on the, on the show. And I was like, this is a novel and I know it is. And, and so when the pandemic happened, I suddenly like had some space and I was like, I'm just going to write this draft. And I did. So I finished the first draft that summer and, you know, I'm right now I'm actually, I did, I worked with an editor last summer and then I was in the tin house workshop in January, which was wonderful. And so I'm now working, I'm finishing up the third draft and going to start querying again. So that was definitely something that I feel like in a way the pandemic gave me the push to do, you know, and the space to do and the freedom to do as hard as it was in other ways, obviously. And like, I don't even think fully though, I I was been talking to a lot of friends about this that I don't think I fully even, I'm a person who like when grief or trauma happens in my life, like I was saying, I'm such a doer that like, it didn't fully catch up to me, I think until probably like late summer, early fall that I was really starting to mourn it and just starting to realize And for me, it's like, you know, God, I love the theater so much, obviously. But I think for me, in some ways, it was was really the social aspect of it that I miss the most, you know, because that. Yes. I don't know if it's like that for you with music, too, right? It's like, yeah, it's so much of us going to shows and like running into people and like grabbing a drink before the show Mm -hmm. and like all of those. Like, it's just so it was like literally like probably most of my social life. So I think that was the, the, like the biggest loss. And, you know, like I said, I I was really lucky that as a writer, I still had some work, you know? Um, Exactly. You know, it's hearing you talk about that. I mean, it's, it's the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why the podcast, this podcast became an actual thing. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of 2020, I had just gotten back from visiting my sister over in Taipei, and -hmm. I was ready to record a ton of new music. Gosh, I've had this music ready to put out for so long. Um, And yeah, no, I was, you know, at my house and I wasn't playing shows. I was going to record the stuff and then tour it a bunch and be all over the place, you know, pushing, pushing as much as I could. Um, And that just wasn't going to happen. So the same sort of reckoning of why, what do I actually, what's the core part of why I'm doing what I'm doing? And I always came back to the storytelling. I love performing and standing in front Mm -hmm. of people, telling my story, sharing my songs, which are by virtue of being part of me, part of my story. And this seemed like a perfect way to have all of that because I could talk to people about their stories and the universality of why they're important and how we all are connected in them and then the music that's behind them. I think is because every memory that we have, I think of the poignant moments in our life, for sure, there's a song that will perfectly remind you of that moment. Yeah, I love you saying that, too, because I think for me that also the pandemic gave me that 
I, I mean, I've always been somebody who likes writing in different genre, but I, I think similarly to what you're saying, it, it really did strengthen that feeling in my mind that like, I am a storyteller above all things. And the kind of the, as much as I like adore the theater and, and love that as a means of storytelling, it's not the only way. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually really interested in all the ways that there are to tell stories and excited about how, I mean, I think personally, I can push myself and how each form sort of informs the other and strengthens the other, right? Totally. Yeah. Okay. So a bit of a, it's a good segue into like the meat and bones of, of this podcast. And that is your gay playlist. I love the fact that I tell people to make a playlist that is about their coming out story. And then I get a handful of songs. I just sit here thinking like, what parts of your life is this talking about? You know, what moments are significant enough that these songs are speaking to? And uh, most of all, I'm really wondering in your memory and sort of heart space, what is coming out to you or what has it been? And what part of that process is these are these songs speaking to? Your playlist has got some good, it's got Coldplay on it. I, I love the Brandy Carlisle. There's Ingrid Michaelson. There's some Santa Fe. You know, we met in Santa Fe. There's Beirut. There's D numbers, which if you know, you know, D numbers. I had to, I had to. I, that just made me smile. D numbers at the root of it. Let's start with what is sort of coming out to you. If you think about how, in all the ways that you have, what are the most poignant moments mm -hmm. of that or reminders of that process? Um, yeah. Or, and has there been more than one coming out? I think there's many in life, but I'm curious sure. to know what your thoughts are on all that. When I was definitely, while I was working on this list, I really was thinking about, you know, when I was coming out as gay. Well, really, I mean, honestly, I think when I first came out, I like told my parents that I was bi because I was very confused and unsure and unsure and, you know, all those, all those things. But I really was thinking about like when I first fell in love, you know, with a woman, first kissed a woman, Santa Fe, like, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of time of my life, that, that eye opening, that, you know, that like, wow, feeling that like, oh my God, the light bulb, um, of it that. all makes sense now kind of moment. It all makes sense moment. Yeah. The mm -hmm. buzz of it, the excitement, the, you know, for me having a lot of, you know, first gen and Catholic sort of trauma, I feel like also the intensity just of it, the, you know, emotion, you know, just like the, it, it's so many emotions, you know, I do. I'm before I'm curious. So your parents are from your parents were came to Louisiana from Cuba. They actually, uh, they actually came to New York. They met in New York city. Okay, cool. And then they found their way to new Orleans, which is where you grew up. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. For me, like, I really do think about that time in Santa Fe because for me, Santa Fe, and I think probably it's a huge reason why Santa Fe is so special to me because I feel like it was just an opening up for me. It was oh, yeah. the first time in my life that people really were telling me like, this is cool. This is great. Like, you know, great. We support you. You know, this is a good thing. Um, so I think that that definitely is like the place that I went to, but at the same time, it's funny. I mean, I've talked about it a lot that I think for me too, I think I had a second, a bit of a second, you know, coming out in a way in terms of my own like gender presentation, because I definitely sure. am more masculine of center. And that has been, while it's been something that's definitely trailed me my entire life, I think just sort of going through the motions of being that, you know, it's funny because for a lot of people, you know, I've been living in New York for over a decade. So for some people in New York, it's really funny because they're just like, and even my, my therapist, who's like very New York, <laughs> they are so confused by it. But I did go through a period where like I had to tell friends that I grew up with that I couldn't wear a dress to their wedding because I was getting panic attacks about it. And literally they were, you know, and that meant I couldn't be in their wedding, you know? And, and it's so interesting because I've some people like in the North or friends that I have, you know, in theater or whatever, like, what the fuck? Like, I don't understand. And I'm just like, that is the nature of the world that I, that I grew up in. And it's a dang thing, dude. It's a thing. I mean, I had a friend who literally her father said, I didn't pay $30,000 for a wedding for the bridesmaids not to wear dresses. Mm. So it's like, you know, so it was, that was a whole thing for sure. And I think, 
honestly, and then even further, like, I feel like just coming to terms with the fact of wanting to go by CQ rather than like sort of the name that I was born with, which is also something that has kind of been trailing me my whole life. Like when I was a little, you know, it was when I was in first grade, I wanted to go by Chris and my, my mom was like, absolutely not. So, you know, it's a, so it's like all those things that it's like, it's not new, you know what I mean? I think it's just a matter of, you know, coming to terms with it and when you're sort of like ready in that way. But I think that for me, I, again, like musically, it just, I just go, there's just something too. I feel like I was so surrounded by music at that point in my life. I was also dating a musician, but I think about like being in my car and just listening to music all the time. You know, I was working at this place called Hastings, which was, uh, you That's know, right. you did work place, at Hastings. Yeah, I worked at Hastings, which was like, I always tell people that it was sort of like if Barnes and Noble and Best Buy had a baby a little yes. bit, like a very strange little child. but I worked in the books department at Hastings. And so some of these songs hilariously, like the Owl City song would play all the time at Hastings. So it's funny. It's just sort of like triggering that sense memory of of the time and the space. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So I feel like that. And I almost, almost put, because the new, uh, the Beatles had actually been totally remastered at that time. And I didn't actually grow up really with the Beatles. My parents weren't really like big Beatles fans. So hilariously, like when I think about that time in my life, I think about the Beatles. Because for the first time, I actually heard a lot of Beatles songs that I never actually really heard growing up, which is really funny. Right. Uh, but I didn't, end, I didn't end up including any of those. But again, I think I've had multiple coming outs. And, and as we all have, like you were saying, I think it's a beautiful thing because coming out isn't just for, for queer folks and gay people. But yeah, that time for me is just so it's so musical in my life and in my mind, you know, it's great. So you said that you said that when you got to Santa Fe, so, you know, so folks that are listening that don't personally know you or your story, or maybe haven't Googled you at this point, (laughs) you moved to Santa Fe to go to college of Santa Fe to study theater and you get there and you know, I, we met, we met there. So I can say from my own experience, I had a similar thing where like, once I got away from home, I think I had always known I was attracted to women. I chalked it up to like the baby step. When I got to Santa Fe, I was like inside of myself. I was like, I'm bisexual. I knew that probably wasn't true, but it was like a a safe enough way to sort of push out of the straight zone. I guess you, you could say when you got there, was it, like immediate? Did you find yourself in situations where you were um, feeling curious or open to new things? And also what songs on this playlist maybe speak to moments like that, if there is any? Yeah. Oh my God. So great. So there's two parts of that. So my freshman year, definitely I came and I was a little just really frankly, you know, my senior year of high school was the year of Hurricane Katrina. So it was kind of a fucked up year. I didn't live. That's right. I didn't live at home. I I lived in New Mexico. I'm not, excuse me, not New Mexico. I lived in St. Louis for the fall with my friend and her aunt. And then the second semester I lived with some other friends in New Orleans once our school reopened. So it had been kind of a crazy year emotionally. And I don't think I really fully started again and with that thing of not really sort of appreciating trauma until or understanding trauma or starting to feel it until later. I think I really actually started to process that when I got to Santa Fe. The mm. fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, you know, I dated a couple guys actually when I got to New Mexico to New Mexico. And it was just like always like something just didn't feel right. I honestly, for the longest time, really, really did think that, you know, it had something to do with my best friend from New Orleans that like, I really had this idea in my mind that like, it was something about like, maybe we were meant to be. And that the reason that it was never working out was because of him. Like I had like sort of constructed this very romantic narrative in my head, which. Okay. <laughs> which was, Did you date him? Then uh, when I was very little, when I was very, when I was like 14, like we, young puppy love sort yeah, of dating. Yeah. 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 Situation. And okay. he was my best friend. He really was. And I think that I really like, I just cre- crafted this narrative for myself, you know, this very, like, what do you call it? Uh, pretty in pink or what's the other one? It's like very, yeah, I had this very like 16 candles. 
16 candles. Yeah. What's the one where the best friend where they like end up together? It's really weird. And where he's like in the all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. No, there's the one that's like really weird where like he he does like the paintings of her and brings her into the gallery. It's like so creepy. Anyway, I can't oh think gosh. of the name of it. I can't think of the name of it either. You know what I, what I, I mean? see the scene in my head. Yeah. It's so exactly. creepy. But anyway, and then he realizes he's like in love with the best friend. So I really had, you know, I'm obviously obsessed with storytelling. I was always have always been a big romantic. Uh, and I think that I just had that story in my head and I kind of decided that. And then my, uh, but my freshman year, interestingly, there was a person who lived on my hall um, at the time. Ironically, uh, her name uh, was Sarah and she would flirt with me a lot. And there was another woman who lived on my hall who was in a relationship with another woman and they were roommates and it was amazing. Um, That's you, rad. Do you remember I, Mocha? Do you remember Mocha? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my God. And every week they would go on their bowling date. It was so cute. I was like, okay. So That's I had amazing. all, so this was my hall, you know, and it was the f- interesting thing. So like Sarah would totally, I mean, listen, we're friends to this day. So like maybe in my head, she was flirting with me. So I like literally <laughs> had to develop this huge crush on Sarah, like huge. And definitely by second semester, my friend, Matt Wigan, who is a gay man and Sarah and I were kind of inseparable. Like we did everything together and we were, and I just like started to realize like more and more, like I had these feelings for her that I just like were overwhelming me, honestly. Like it was very, very intense. Like I didn't really, I was very, you know, Catholic guilt, like very like sort of confused and just like a lot, but I was like, you know, very uh, intense and actually it was like the last day, like literally before we were like going home and we were all like in this like diner and poor Matt, I, I had like, t- I told him and like, he was just like, <laughs> he was like, I don't want to deal with this, this a lot. <laughs> I can picture that. And I, picture him doing I that. will never forget. It was like the night before we were leaving and she actually like basically locked me in her room with her and was like, you need to tell me. She was like, I want you to tell me it's okay. Just tell me. She do. And it was so intense. And I like fucking cried a river. God. And I told her and it was, it was so intense. It was so intense. And like, God bless Sarah Box was my roommate. And like, I went back and I was just like, it, it was a lot. It was a lot. And then that summer, like she wrote me this like love letter. And I remember like keeping it and like being like, so just like, I was, I was a lot. It's, it was very, uh, very, very intense. And I don't know, honestly, it's funny. I didn't associate any of these songs with that specific period, because then it was the fall and I was just like falling in love with women. So Meg knows this so well because I had a huge crush on Meg Zinke and she had a I crush on me. I think we all me. had a huge crush on Meg Zinke at some point. It's yes. so true. And we admitted it to each other. The best you, part Meg. of that is that, love you, Meg. <laughs> the best part of that is that we uh, admitted it to each other when we were like in other relationships. I remember I was driving her to the airport and she was like, you know, I had a huge crush on you. I was like, you know, I had a huge crush on you. <laughs> and I was just like, God, and I was so, oh my God, that, okay. So D numbers, definitely thinking about that time in my life that, and actually funnily enough, I included that song, Don't Hurry Love, this is by the Supremes. Her song on your playlist. Yeah, I loved, I loved how you started it with that one. Yes. Because it was so, in that time, I think I just, I honestly think for my whole life, I was just so hungry to just like really experience, like to be in love actually experience that like the real like to experience a real relationship like in a way that felt you know real and truthful and not that I was looking for something else because I think when I was dating men I I was always looking for something else or I described it once that I remember being in I remember being like at school dances and like always looking throughout the room for something and I didn't even know what I was looking for you know but yeah that song don't hurry love it was such a mantra of that fall um that I just like it, it really like I think about it and I remember the funny thing is God bless Meg um that she was the first person who made me realize that I had a, a huge crush on my first girlfriend who would become my first girlfriend the funny thing is is that I sort of really was I was sort of terrified of her I thought she was very intense and there was this I was terrified of Leslie when I first met her and I thought she was very intense I love her so much thank you so much for saying that. I love her so much. The first conversation, and I tell it all the time, is like Leslie essentially, Leslie, who was your first girlfriend, essentially outed me to myself because she clearly saw that I was gay and in the closet. And like every time we hung out, she would ask me about it. Like she was poking at me. And I was like, I don't know. I, I, 
I would outwardly say like, I'm not gay, but inside I was screaming, like, I don't know. And and then finally, one time she just looked at me, she's like, you know what, Liv, maybe you're gay. And it was like that clicked the switch. And I ran back to my room. I immediately left her company. I was like, I need to go. And I ran back to my room and I had a freaking like existential cry. I was like, oh my gosh, I am gay. Maybe I am. That makes sense. Oh my God, I love it. And literally the next week I started coming out to everyone. So I owe her a lot in that regard. But yeah, super intense. And that's what I love about her. I actually love knowing that about, cause I know, I mean, I, God, I love her to death. She's to this day, a dear friend. We were just talking the other day, but I literally, she came up to me. It was her freshman year. It was my sophomore year. I was an RA and we did these skits. Right. And I, you know, was always, you know, I was in the comedy group and be like, you were and everything, but I did this like whole thing, like this naked yoga skit or whatever, <laughs> like that was, and she came up to me literally like two inches from my face and was like, you're hilarious. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I was, it was so intense. Like she was just like, you're hilarious. Like, yeah, we should hang out sometime or something like that. And I was just like, like, not breaking eye contact at all. Oh my Yeah. Not breaking eye contact at all. Like super intense. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you. So great to meet you. Very nice. (laughs) Uh, Like equally parts terrified and electrified. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That was totally. And I think was, it was a huge, obviously I was attracted to her and I think I was just like very terrified. And the funny thing is, is I remember my friend, Emily, who's also a dear friend to this day. She hosted this thing called like, it was like the 30 hour famine where we, it was like, we raised money for world hunger and we like, didn't eat for period of time. And there was this big, hilariously a kegger, but there was this big fundraiser. And that's when I think about D numbers. And I had made this decision that I was going to like for Lent, still a good Catholic. I still love to do this actually. Lent, it's a great exercise because of the period of time, but I try to like give something up like in some way. And so I was really trying hard to like give up first judgments that I'd made about people. And Leslie really fucking terrified me. And I had really been judgy about her for sure. And so I was like, for Lent, I'm going to give up my first judgments, people. And I think I judged her really hard. And I'm going to really, you know, try to uh, be better about that. So that night at this fundraiser, we just like had this huge, long conversation. And so I then, you know, had to or, or, or suddenly started to realize that I had feelings for her. And Meg really was the one who first noticed it. Um, she was like, you have a crush on her, don't you? And I was like, I mean, I don't know. And funnily enough, I think about <laughs> God bless. This is like really like going back down memory lane. Mary Beth Lindsay. I love her. We were all like hanging out one night. It was Mary Beth and Brandon, Brandon Greenhouse, amazing, this whole group. And Leslie and I had been hanging out a ton. And actually, she was like, you should just kiss her. Just go to her room and just kiss. That's so something Mary Beth would say. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. It's late right now. Like I've been drinking. Like, I just don't know if it's a good idea. And she was like, no, go. And I was like, bad idea. Did you go? I did go over there. That's not when I kissed her though. And she was like, had been like in bed watching the L word. Hilarious. Can this get any more? (laughs) And I remember, I think she was like kind of annoyed. Like, and I was just like, okay, great. I've like ruined this. But then we were still hanging out and I can't remember the order of operations, but I do remember that one night we were like hanging out in her room and I just, I don't know where I got the courage, but I just like pinned her to the bed and kissed her. And uh, it was like, hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what I mean? Um, Jesus yeah. came down and said, I've been watching this whole time. <laughs> Welcome. Jesus said, great job, buddy Christ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that was a thumbs up for the podcast world. Um, anyway, so it was, you know, so I feel like a lot of these songs have to do with just that glorious feeling of, and a lot of like her, you know, she would always sing that love that, you know, uh, that love song, that Sarah Bariel song, it was like really popular at the time. And she like would do a cover of it. And so like, I think about that and I think about just like the intensity. Uh, she was the person who introduced me to Brandy Carlyle before Brandy Carly was even, Carlyle was even a thing. Me too. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember like with her self-titled album and all that. And to be frank, I actually didn't love Brandy Carlyle at first. It took me a minute to kind of really get into her. Mm-hmm. Same, same. You know, CQ, I'm curious, 
telling these stories, which I adore hearing <laughs> these stories. And, you know, you are, you are a playwright. You've been writing pilots. You've worked on TV shows. You're writing a novel. Like you are a storyteller. You are creating the scene so well, but you've also talked about how you internally in these moments recognize, like there's a recognition within yourself that you've concocted these narratives. Do you think that like some of those stories, like about your friend that maybe you always missed the opportunity with him before mm -hmm. you got to college, were those sort of like safety blankets because what was happening was too overwhelming? And, and you also had talked about the trauma sort of being late to the game of kind of realizing I, in my own experience and having those traumatic moments, God knows I've had enough. There is a late thing. And I think the story that I've told myself to kind of make it through for so long becomes the story that becomes real in my head. And then I have to maybe relearn some things after the fact, or I see a new side of things after the fact. I don't know if I'm making sense anymore, but I'm yeah. curious if you've yeah. experienced any of that in coming out or in just learning more about who you authentically are as opposed to who you thought you should be. Yeah, no, I don't, I totally hear that. I mean, I think I, with, when it comes to, to Tom, for sure, it's funny when I actually came out to him, I remember he was like totally unfazed. Like he was like, not surprised at all. And he was like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, and I was like, and I was like, I remember being like, you know what I mean? I think because I sort of had that narrative for so long that I was just like, I was like, like, really? Like, I remember he was like playing video games or something. I think we, I told him on the phone and he was just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, I'm not that surprised. And I was just like, okay, interesting. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think it, it is, it, it is interesting. I mean, there are so many things like that you start to piece together. You know, I have a play called Scissoring which is loosely based on a teacher that I had in high school who was in the closet and sort of had to kind of re-closet herself in a way because to take the job. And it sort of was in the play and actually, spoiler alert, and unfortunately kind of in real life, as I learned later, I didn't know, um, was kind of the end of their relationship for that reason. Wow. And I think that, you know, funnily enough, that was actually, I was in a relationship in New York years later with uh, another Southerner. Uh, who had come from a very um, kind of, I will say, upper crust white family in Alabama and uh, who really had a lot of shame, who carried a lot of shame. And I still carried a lot of shame. And I think experiencing that really also like caused me to re-experience a lot of things within my own life and things that had happened. I mean, I when I was a, I believe a freshman, maybe a sophomore in high school, there were two girls that were caught making out on the tennis courts. I went to a Catholic school for eight years, two girls who were caught making out on the tennis courts and one was expelled and one was suspended. Wow. And that was kind of my first, one of my first sort of experiences with lesbianism. And the first, probably the first time I ever heard the word lesbian was when my sister's boyfriend called me a dyke when I was like in fifth grade. Cause I dressed super, I was a super tomboy. How much older was, is your sister than you? She's five years older. Okay. I. So he clearly knew the implications of that word. And it, it wasn't like a innocent thing that a kid says, cause they don't really know. They just hear it around. Like he knew yeah, yeah. what he was saying and, and what that implied. Yeah. 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 Um, and that was the first time I think in my life, probably I ever heard the word. I was like, what, like 10 or 11. So I think I always it's, you know, and yeah. And growing up, as I tell a lot of people about New Orleans, because a lot of people don't necessarily realize it, that New Orleans it's an amazing town. I love it. It's one of my favorite places on earth. It will be, it is my home. It is a, it is still the South. Um, it is still quite conservative in a lot of ways. And above all, it is a very Catholic town. A lot of people don't realize that Louisiana is actually the only state in the country that actually uses parish instead of County as the, uh, way to differentiate areas within, um, a city. Wow. I didn't know that. It's that Catholic. Uh, and so I think that's, um, that's always a big thing. So I think there were just a lot of layers, you know, and then on top of obviously cultural barriers, you know, and sort of like being first gen and, you know, being Cuban and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think that there was a lot, there was a lot to work through for sure. For yeah. Sure. Do you think that you were able to 
get through those moments with a bit of grace uh, when they came up. I mean, I'm sure maybe I'm just going to assume that it was a challenge to maybe have those conversations with your parents. Yeah. So this is, again, it it all goes back to Santa Fe. So I was living in Santa Fe. I decided to stay for the summer because I had a job. I was an RA and I had a job working on campus for the summer. And so my best friend, Nick, um, and I were going to live together. And I remember I wrote a letter to my parents. <laughs> I think I, I think I was scared to call them, but I also, I don't know. I felt even then that as a writer, I guess, even though I never didn't really call myself necessarily a writer at that point, but I just wrote it out, you know, and just, I think there's something freeing about letter writing that we don't get. Yeah. We don't know these days you can put the yeah. things down and send it and it can be heard. There was a freeing thing about knowing like it will get, it was all, it was like freeing and terrifying to know it'll get there. I don't know exactly when, but I did. And I remember I was literally like in the car with Zach, my buddy, Zach and Nick. And uh, we were sort of like the three caballeros at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in the car and I got a call from my mom and she literally was like, we got your letter and we're not happy. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. It was hard. It was really, really, really hard. But I will say also that summer that my, you know, girlfriend at the time, you know, who was Leslie, she surprised me and actually came and stayed with me that summer, which was super romantic and lovely. So it was a very intense summer <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, very, I think very, probably very Brandy Carlisle filled summer uh, <laughs> for sure. And you have her, you have her song Touching the Ground on your playlist, which yes. I just love, like the lyrics, is, you know, uh, what is it? Why do my troubles turn true whenever I rest my eyes on you? Yeah, uh, It's such a great song and so relatable, I think to the queer experience in a lot of ways too, because we're pushing up against so much resistance or have in the past. I think yeah. the, the younger generation isn't, they're not seeing that as much. I was just commenting to my wife last night, we were watching TV and like, I would say two thirds of the ads that were popping up on Hulu had, if they were a family, they had clearly queer couples That's with awesome. children in the ads. And it wasn't like some hyper femme lesbian couple. It was just normal looking people um, that were, you know, cast to be partners with children. That's awesome. And I thought, I never had this. This was an anomaly if when I was growing up, if if it ever oh my was God, visible. Right? Yeah. But yeah, no, it's so true. I think about it all the time, especially like in the nature of, you know, what I do. It's, I think it's so interesting and complicated. It's, it's so beautiful that there's like so much more representation than there was for us. Mm-hmm. And I think it does make like such a big difference. And I mean, just, I mean, really, frankly, the fact that like gay marriage is legalized, you know, is such yeah. a huge like step, you know, it's not, obviously it was not the end all be all, but it was a huge step in the sense of like, now it's like, in a lot of places, it's like, well, guess what? Like, you can't pretend we don't exist because this is literally like a, you know, a sanctioned thing in this country. Um, you know, I think that's honestly kind of what I was getting to in a way is that I think it's complicated because we have come so much further. And I think in terms of like our ancestors and so many, you know, I've had conversations with my friends who are older and, you know, one of my dearest friends is like a, a man who's a gay man in his seventies and, you know, just talking to them about like what they've been through, you know, I definitely recognize like how far we've come, but I also do think it's dangerous because there is also so much to do, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that sometimes, especially being in very blue environments, but it's like, I definitely, you know, I had the experience just, this was now like two summers ago that my, my wife is from a very rural place in uh, Michigan and I was denied, I was denied a haircut twice from two different barbershops. Wow. Can't believe it. Yeah. So I, I do think that it's like, yeah, of course we've come really, really far and clearly, I mean, but you know, especially like trans rights and there's, there's still, there's plenty of work to do. Yeah. I'm one of the last things I I wanted to kind of talk about before the end of our chat is I'm curious how the more you came into your, you know, empowered self that you are now working your ass off and just getting so much recognition. I feel like for the work that you've done and you're, you're just 
I'm so proud of you. Like knowing you in college, making silly sketches in underwear society and watching. Yeah. Being in one of the first shows, like one of the first shows I was in in college, you cast me in. It was a piece that you wrote. Uh, it might've been the earlier version of was the, the early version of scissoring for sure. Yeah, yeah. And that, that process too, I'll just say as a side note was a huge part of my coming out because I was coming out while we were working on that show. And I remember in the audition right. process, you asking in the callback, like what my sexual orientation was and I, which I probably think I, is like illegal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember thinking like, should she ask me that? But I remember saying to you that I was bi. And that was the first time I spoke out loud to someone that wasn't like in an inconfidence, like hushed tone. I'm sorry if I made you uncomfortable. No, no, no. I, I think about it now. And I think like moments like that and moments like, you know, Leslie just being like, maybe are gay or were the gentle like loving pushes that I needed to just say the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm curious working as a playwright, working in uh, poetry, working in television, you're doing scripted podcasts. How are you finding this authentic way that you are now to have maybe navigated some of your work or inform some of the relationships or how you approach the work. Does that make sense? Like, is there, is there a difference? Does it hold any significance at all to you? For sure. I think it's, you know, it's so funny. I think a lot about, do do you, do you ever know Claire Davidson? Did you Uh, ever know her? Theater department? Yes. Mm -hmm. She was a British directing professor um, that we had who was just like amazing. Like we used to basically say she was like sort of like Yoda. Mm -hmm. And I remember that she once she would do these like personal meetings. She wasn't my advisor, but like I signed up to have a meeting with her because she taught like whatever class it was. And I remember her saying something to me that she was like, you, she, she basically said like, I reminded her of herself and she was like, you just need to, if you don't access the emotions yourself, and she was referring to me as an actor, but I think of it as a writer all the time, which is if you don't access those things, then you'll never, as a for yourself, then you'll never be able to access them as an actor. Mm. And I really think, again, it, it's the same thing as a writer. And I think that I have had to come to terms with everything on all the parts of myself and all of those uncomfortable things and all the in-between that sort of I feel like is so much of who I am in order to be the writer that I am today. And I'm still always navigating that, but, and it is like a beautiful thing to be able to write stories now. You know, I think about, I just, I finished the first draft of the audible piece that it's really exciting and it feels very different than anything I've ever written in in a, in a good way. It's simply, you know, obviously it's me, but. Is this a scripted podcast that you're working on for the auto? It's actually a, um, it will be a, uh, an audio play. It's through uh, the audible, it's audible theater program. They have this oh. like really cool program where they basically commission playwrights and then they, um, so it's like, it'll be an audio play. So it'll be available Eventually, I, I would imagine probably sometime, if not late 2021, early 2022, by the time, you know, That's rad. gets there. Yeah, I'm really, it's been awesome to work on. And it's just been fun to think about, you know, working in that way, you know, for just the ear, you know, what's heard. And um, I'm sure you've been thinking about that a lot or we'll always think about it as a musician, but yeah. Um, Yeah. And just working on that piece and it's, it is about queerness, but it's, it's, it's not in a way that feels like, you know, writing scissoring felt so, which was started as, you know, hearsay and then became scissoring was so much about, you know, what does it mean when you can't be yourself, which I think is really real. And I do think, and I really like had the argument that, you know, when it finally, when it had its premiere in 2018, the sad thing was at that point, you could still be fired for being gay. So I, I do think that it's come, it's come along, it's come a long way, you know, and now it's like, I feel like, I mean, I say it all the time, all of my work is pretty unabashedly queer and unabashedly POC and, you know, that's just like who I am. And I think I'm, I'm finally in a place that I'm like a little bit like, you know, I'm not so concerned about it. I think unfortunately earlier in my life, you know, my dad, God bless him. He was a good man, but he would often say like, why do you feel the need to write about women's sexuality all the time? Mm. And I remember that really just like weighing on me, you know, and feeling like 
I remember being so worried about being put into this pocket and put into this hole of, you know, and, and, and more than once I've had people say, you know, I think one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was I was working with Craig Lucas and he was one of my professors for a time when I was at Columbia. And just to have that kind of queer mentorship at that point was really necessary for me. And I remember he read a draft, I think of scissoring was at the time. And cause I worked on it as my thesis in grad school. And he, I remember saying that to him being like, I'm just so worried about just being seen as a gay playwright. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you think Tony Kushner worried about being seen as a gay playwright when he wrote angels in America? Hmm. And he was like, he listed like all of these great, you know, plays and playwrights. And he was just like, you're writing the play that you need to write because it's the play that you need to write. And if you are seen as a gay playwright, well, so what? Fuck it. They see you as a gay playwright. That's who you are. Right. And I've thought about that a lot, you know, and I think it's, it has to do with all of my identities, but um, it was really, really profound and and good advice, you know? Totally. You know, what you said about uh, the comment that your dad would make, like, why do you need to write about women's sexualities? And you said he would put it in this pocket. And, you know, it yeah. makes me, it, it, I always, I've started to think who makes that pocket? Yeah. I'm not putting myself there. Like I am yeah. standing here, like opening up my heart and saying, you know, when I write music or when I have these conversations with people or anything, telling, doing storytelling events, doing workshops, it's like, I'm standing here telling you, this is my lived experience. And do you find truth in it? What's your truth? I want you to see your truth in mine. Can't we just do that? And so I think the more that we do that and you write plays like scissoring and I, you know, I just adore your work, but like it tears the seams of that pocket away so we can just stand with the rest. Right. Yeah. And that's important. It's definitely, you know, it's, it really is. It's, you know, not to put it in those base terms necessarily, but it, it, it is, it's a patriarchal thing. You know, it's, it is the white patriarchy talking like it, it, it is a way that we've grown up that like, there's this idea that there's only one way to tell stories and there's not, you know, like how many stories have we seen with, I'll just say it with a white straight, you know, protagonist where we have been able to see ourselves in that story, even though it might not be our lived experience. And exactly what you're saying, a great song is a great song. And if you really are moved by it, it doesn't really fucking matter if it's a song that's a love song about two women or, you know, two queer people that versus, you know, a man and a woman, so to speak. Uh, exactly. So with you. Yeah. Okay. So CQ, the last question I always end our episodes with is uh-huh. if, if you could go back knowing what you know now as your wonderful, wise self. <laughs> If you could could go back and give your baby queer self some advice or something to make it easier, uh, something from your experience that you know now that could carry you through, what would it be? What would you tell your younger self? Oh, damn. That's that's such a, such a small question. (laughs) Oh man. I think I would tell myself, which I probably wouldn't listen to. I think I would say, don't worry so much because it's all, you know, in the words of, uh, I, it's one of my favorite quotes ever, but uh, it's from the I Ching, which is um, fate comes when it will. And thus we are ready. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it's don't worry so much. Don't hurry so much. I'm not, it's all going to be okay. Cause that's annoying, but, um, but you'll find your way. Ooh, I like that. Yes. Don't worry so much. Don't hurry so much. <laughs> That's an awesome. I'm going to take that for myself, girl. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't wait for that song. I'm ready. Yes. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Okay. That was fun. I love you, CQ. There I said it. I love you. I'm so glad we got to catch up. I'm so glad I got to hear so many little tidbits of your story that I had never known. If you're listening and you want to follow CQ's awesome life of being a radically wonderful, talented human, follow them on Instagram. Their handle is 
C. Quintana Town. That's the same for Twitter as well. They're also involved with so many awesome groups. So be sure to just go check them out, support their work. Playing out today is our friends from over there in Utah, Three Hat Trio. This is their new tune called Miss Tilly. was created by yours truly Liv Lombardi that's me and Courtney Ortel and co-produced by Virago Artist Management with additional support from Hannah Varnum. music by yours truly once again Liv Lombardi as always thank you for your ears and your hearts if you like what you heard today be sure to subscribe to our podcast write a review and share with your friends until then be kind to yourself and gentle I hope you have a good week and we'll see you next time